Top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You will die only to live again in a younger body. Then you can tell me if the operation was a success. I could easily kill you now, but I'm determined to have your brain. You're listening to the Really Awful Movies Podcast, a celebration of genre cinema. Hi, my name is Chris, and along with Jeff, we talk about movies that aren't really awful at all. Horror, action, kung fu, musicals, post-apocalyptic, women in prison films, and much, much more. From our downtown Toronto headquarters, here's episode 333 of the Really Awful Movies podcast, Edge of the Axe. Now, uh, uh, yeah, uh, listeners may be familiar with uh, this rather in- inefficient killing mechanism in um, the likes of, let's say, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Silent Night, Bloody Night, you got your Madman, you got your Axeman, and of course, the iconic Jack Torrance going after his wife in The Shining. But few people, I would venture, have heard of Edge of the Axe. At least I didn't when I came up upon this one. Nor did I. When you, uh, when you texted me about this film, I, I, I was dumbfounded. I had never heard of it before. And that's pretty incredible. I mean, when you think about it, like Tubi and other types of streaming services are just a a treasure trove of information. And I think like uh, Martin Scorsese famously advocated on behalf of showing people and making uh, films, uh, let's say much better films than this one, more widely and publicly available for the love of cinema and to celebrate the art. Now, it's arguable as to whether Al Filo del Hacha, this uh, (laughs) Spanish-American co-production, really falls into that uh, wheelhouse, but I mean, I really enjoyed this one, and it was a to-be-find, and I, th- I saw that, that thumbnail, and I was like, what is this Mike Myers look-alike kind of thing, and I was, I was on board right away, because I'm so, so fond of rip-off movies. To be or not to be? Uh, well, <laughs> this... <laughs> no, but you're, yeah, it's funny, you, you said Mike Myers, and it's, it's interesting you say that, because the killer, he doesn't look that much like Mike Myers, but what is similar is he's got a completely white mask, um, completely blank-faced, and uh, it kind of looks like plaster, like someone put some plaster all around his face. It's very effective. Oh, I agree. And uh, this one is, I mean, I, I think this could be a unique beast in having both the cheesiest and the scariest moments together in one film. I can't think of another movie like this. I mean, it, it really... pendulum swings between gothic Euro horror and cheesy uh, 80s slasher tropes, even though it was released in the latter half of the decade. And you would think like by that time, I mean, it has a bit of a dated feel, like it has an early 80s vibe that really doesn't square with the creative approach taken by Jose Ramon Larraz, the director. But I thought it was just so weird and and wacky and, and so endearing on so many levels. Oh, it was it was uh, a delight. I mean, it was um, it was fun. It was funny. Yes, there was some very creepy moments. There was some howling line, howling lines of dialogue. One of my favorite lines. Um, at one point, one of the characters finds in her bed not a horse head, but a pig's head. <laughs> and when she goes to the cop, and this cop is one of the funniest cops in the history of cinema. I mean, the guy does not want to be bothered. Everything that happens in his small town, he wants to put down as an accident. Whether it's a murder, whether it's a suicide, 
you must put it down as an accident until the murders start piling up. So when the lady comes in and says, can you please investigate this? Sorry, no, it was her husband who came in. The cop retorts by saying, you come into my office smelling like them hogs you hang around with. Go call someone who gives a shit. Now, <laughs> if the cop is not someone who doesn't give a shit, who the hell are you supposed to call? <laughs> Ghostbusters? Uh, and you'd think in, in a country so famous for its pork products, uh, Spain, with it, what, what is it, hambone or whatever you call it, like the best smoked cured pork on the planet, they would give a little more than no shits about uh, the demise of one of its uh, porcine uh, animals there. And especially, it's so threatening too, with the blood all over it. It was an overt threat, and the guy's just so absolutely dismissive of it. It's That was absolutely wild. Yeah, to be fair, I mean, you mentioned Spain, but this film, uh, was it shot in Spain, Chris? I, was, I didn't quite... Uh, uh, it it was a co-production, and you could actually very, I mean, subtly tell which uh, were... I think the front half was uh, California, so they shot it in Big Bear, which is... Uh, a, a common uh, place for boxers and MMA fighters to go work out because of the rugged terrain and go for runs and stuff. And then in the latter half, you could sort of tell a very different kind of feel, especially with the interiors. And you got those Euro door handles and stuff. So it's pretty subtle, but I think the uh, landscapes really match, ma match very well, it's just to the extent the actors sometimes don't. Because you have some Spanish-speaking actors, and then so you have this weird prostitute who seems to have walked right in off the streets of Seville or something, and you're like, how did this lady end up here? There's some very strange moments. Oh, for sure, because it was, of course, purported to be set in the United States. I believe it was uh, a small town in California. Am I right there? Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, called uh, Patterson. And, you know, whenever they, uh, whenever a foreign production is trying to report that they're in the United States, you're going to find a preponderance of American flags. So, in uh, certain officials' offices, the American flag is everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, for, for some reason, I guess a copyright clearance was not really an issue or was just an afterthought because, my God, like as a marketing reporter, boy, did I see some brands in this film. Like from... Oh, my God, Chris. I, I actually was going to say that for what you learned, but <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, this thing had so much product placement. For some reason, a lot of pop product placement, very conspicuous uh, displays of uh, sun-kissed, Coke, uh, in fact, it, the Coke even makes it into the dialogue. There's a line saying, don't you want to finish our Cokes? I spotted Gatorade. I spotted Welkis. <laughs> French is mustard. I mean, you name it, the product was in the movie. And that favored uh, Euro beverage, Fanta, which I'm not sure is still being produced on these shores, but uh, for some folks, it's popular enough. I love me some Fanta. And I think you were uh, known to sport uh, this piece of apparel back in the day. Maybe you still do. Uh, good old Converse, which it appears like every character was wearing a pair of, uh, of uh, high-top cons. Oh, yeah. I love my Chuck Taylors. For sure. <laughs> I still support them. Now, was this movie a con is, is the thing. I mean, uh, you, you, I, I don't know how familiar you are with Jose Ramon La Raz, but he, he's done like Deadly Manor and Vampires and all these other kind of weird, erotic, uh, Euro uh, genre films. And you're like... I, I would love to know more about his work, so uh, this one was uh, surely a, g a gateway drug into uh, Mr. LaRaz's uh, oeuvre. And, and yeah, no, I've never heard of him before, and I actually wrote down a bunch of titles that he um, had helmed, Deadly Manor, Stigma, La Muerte Incierta, I hope I'm pronouncing that. Sounds right by me. This one has got to be a giallo, based upon the title, Vice Makes a Visit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> he made a film called Symptoms. Um, many, many films. This film, in particular, Edge of the Axe, he cited as his worst film. 
So if this is his worst film, the rest of his oof must be Citizen Kane because I love this one. <laughs> oh, that really augurs well. I mean, right out of the gate, you get uh, a really, really iconic and memorable, fantastic kill in a car wash. And uh, it was just so well done. Uh, yeah, and I, I thought that really did set the tone, as admittedly some of the kills were cheesy and they had that uh, sort of Friday the 13th uh, body swing into the frame kind of uh, you know, gymnastics kind of trope that you see, like they're hanging off some sort of, you know, um, trapeze act or something. But uh, there, there was a few really well-handled uh, axe murders in this thing, and really all it is, I mean, the plot could not be more simple. You have uh, denizens of this town, this Patterson uh, California, and they're being plucked off one by one by this uh, man in a mask and just roving around. And, and you have uh, two principals, three of them actually, in fact, who are the, the story and the narrative revolve around. And that's, um, I guess, Lillian and, uh, and her boyfriend, who's this nascent video game slash uh, internet developer. <laughs> Indeed, like 88 or 89. say Gerald Martin was the Al Gore of his day because uh, many people have heard of uh, I guess voice to text but this sort of nascent uh, internet technology that the principals were using in this film was like text to voice so you text something and say like oh uh, you know hi Gerald what are you up to let's say I'm Lillian right now and it would say hi Gerald what are you up to and it voiced the actual command which seems to me particularly uh, sort of irrelevant. Like when you cast your mind back to the early days of MSN chat and Yahoo chat and AOL chat, like when you're chatting with someone, <laughs> they hear a voice didn't pop up, like some weird random voice, like robotic voice. That was really, that was so wild. Yeah, these characters, so you got Gerald and his buddy Richard, and they're, I mean, the banter between these two it can't be more uh, memorable. I mean, Richard has this battle axe, uh, no pun intended, of a wife, and makes these constant jokes about offing her in the mo most poorly constructed uh, red herring ever. And uh, he actively cheats on her, and making this like a very weird kind of uh, pickup artist incel type movie. It, it's so wild. I've never seen a slasher with characters like this. Oh, they're definitely unique characters. And you were saying how it kind of reminded you of uh, Pieces, um, another Spanish American co production. And indeed, it did. It definitely had that Pieces uh, feel to it. And they shared an actor with Pieces, which I really uh, was happy to see. An actor by the name of, I believe, Jack Taylor, who played uh, Kaplan in the or the Church Organist, and he sort of looks like he's wearing a fake mustache. And in uh, Pieces, 
who played um, another professor. I think this was Professor Christopher Kaplan, the music professor. And in pieces, he played Professor Arthur Brown. And this is really neat to see these uh, the, the same actor pop up in two different Spanish American co-productions helmed by two different directors. Oh my God! That I was just thinking that that not exactly barn burning musical effort of uh, onward Christian soldier, soldiers by that uh, church choir that just I just I had completely forgotten about it it wasn't in my notes but I was thinking geez you have a choir of like 20 and 30 townsfolk and it's my understanding that choirs should at least have harmonies but this choir does not harmonize at all they're steadfastly against it <laughs> but here, what like hearing thirty people sing in unison? What is this like Gregorian chanting? Like you have thirty people and the guy's pounding away on the organ. And like oh my god, onward Christian soldier! And then the guy goes off into this weird Bach chorale thing, hammering away at the organ. That was just absolutely hilarious and so unnecessary. Like, it seemed like this movie. Obscure reference, but we'll save harmony for Land of Doom. Yeah. It just, uh, <laughs> oh, Land of Doom, yeah, terrific. Well, this, this, like, film just invests so much. I, I guess you could argue for its runtime, possibly maybe too much in these characters because their uh, budding romance between uh, Gerald and Lillian occupies at least 45 minutes of screen time. And uh, I guess for some context, obviously, uh, Gerald is this video game developer who is uh, is so infatuated with. Uh, alien whatever you know uh, space alien games in uh, in the late 80s as we all were that he you know plays it at this bar where she happens to be working and that's how they connect and he's this uh, pedantic uh, video game expert and you'd think like geez what could be more like off-putting to a beautiful uh, blonde woman than someone who's an expert in video games but you know, for the day who knows the guy was a real charmer i mean he, he brought uh, kind of like steve rails back from the stuntman and kind of jim carrey and a little bit of justin bieber i mean that the guy, the guy had quite a mane i can see that i can see that definitely the rails back um for sure uh, this is a character that as another character described had microchip for brains so the computer was definitely um Quite prevalent within this film, <laughs> but more so than the computer, we gotta talk about. I mean, you did uh, mention them, but we gotta uh, sort of luxuriate in some of the kills. Oh boy, well, as, as I mentioned, there was a prostitute who might have walked off the streets of uh, Barcelona who it just, it just appeared like she was an entirely different film altogether because this Patterson, California, was a very rural town in maybe Northern California, and then all of a sudden they're in some gritty cityscape with all this uh, brick backdrop and all this. I just didn't know where the hell that came from. It was so bizarre. And, and uh, he slashed away at her all good, and there are some... Uh, really good kills. There's also one uh, with a, uh, and of all things, a pig farm, which I don't know why that would be in the middle of California, but in the woods. And that, again, speaks to the setting being more uh, Spain at that point than California. But there's a, a tonal and uh, geographical shift in the 45-minute mark that, yeah, and, and we alluded to the car wash murder. That was fantastic. There's also a really good cutaway kill that uh, uh, transposes uh, inter, what's the word? Uh, intercuts, I guess, uh, hacking away at some logs, uh, some wood chopping, and uh, the chopping of one of the victims, which is can be cheesy, but I thought it was handled uh, really deftly. Oh, for sure, for sure. Now, I don't know if this is the point of the podcast to get to what we've learned, because I've learned so much that it might uh, take a while to cover all the different things. But I would love to hear what you learned, Chris. Oh, well. My God, uh, one thing I learned was actually uh, <laughs> a little bit more holistic 
but it was inspired by something that happened at the tail end of this movie. So, there was a, a spelling mistake, a rather gratuitous one, and it said any resemblance to anyone living or dead is fictitious, and uh, there was missing, they were missing an O, so it was spelt wrong, and it was like I-U-S at the end, and uh, that led me down the rabbit hole into learning a little bit why. Um, uh, movies actually have a disclaimer at the end that have this, uh, you know, a, a caveat that uh, characters don't resemble anyone living or dead, which apparently is... Act it's crazy. It was actually linked to a woman who brought a lawsuit against, I believe, Universal Pictures in the 20s uh, to the tune of 150K or thereabouts, which is in today's dollars like $25 million. And uh, it was because of how she was depicted in reference to, of all people, uh, Rasputin the Mad Monk. And so I thought, oh, that is so weird. And then this movie, like, I gotta love, like, there's always something in these genre films that's really inexplicable and, and really hilarious but yeah fictitious is like whoops they got a spelling mistake there another thing i learned yeah this this um lillian character was actually really gorgeous i thought i, I found her like just so appealing and so super cute and she had these like little mini skirts with her converse and this is the actress uh, christina marie lane as uh, lillian nebs the bar the if I search for one second, yeah. it's funny how beauty is in the eye of the beholder, because I didn't really, it really wasn't my type, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't see how she would be considered attractive, but no. Nah, yeah, she had this uh, certain kind of uh, allure to her, and uh, you could see why, I guess, uh, the um, uh, Gerald Martin character was so infatuated with her. Uh, there's also kind of a very, very, uh, I was thinking, you know, in my uh, day job about uh, uh, Aunt Jemima and uh, products that have uh, are seen as uh, really... Uh, sort of pushing back the African-American cause decades and you have the likes of yeah and I was thinking in this movie there's a character who was almost like a good uh, you know like a man Friday almost servant named Jimmy who would run around and do errands for these for the different uh, denizens of this town whether it be uh, cleaning fish that some of the other principals had caught or just going around and, and cleaning uh, homes and all this it was such a bizarre character and the guy was like so good-natured and so thrilled and happy to chat about video games like he was such a bizarre character i mean there, there's really that's another thing i've learned i mean my god there are lots of things that i learned in this one you get this elaborate backstory about lillian and how uh she was involved in an accident with her brother growing up in which uh, she was pushing him on a swing, as kids are wont to do, and she shoved him a little bit too hard, sending her poor brother, uh, in, you know, into, like, you know, falling and, uh, I think, fracturing his skull and uh, confining him to a hospital for, I think, a couple years. So it was a very serious head injury that Lillian was responsible for, and it's a, a point that's alluded to in a scene where her and Gerald actually go and, and play on some swings or I think they do, or they talk about it. There's this lengthy backstory going on, and we got to say, like, it all does tie in to a rather fabulous uh, denouement. But, yeah, the, I, and I'm sure, as in other uh, podcasts we've recorded, I'm going to come up with a few other things I've learned after you share with me what you've learned. So that's what I've learned for now, in addition to, yeah, like, hobnobbing between Big Bear Lake and Madrid and doing all this stuff and making really good use of California and uh, Spain. Write down what did I learn, and then it's always revealed in the course of our discussion. So, what I was going to say, what I learned is, of course, a preponderance of 
product placement. I wonder if that was done to make it, uh, just to give it more of an Americana feel. Although, um, they did have French's mustard. Is some French's mustard made in Canada? Um, I believe it is a McCormick brand, uh, yeah. <laughs> but there's all... Canada represented. Yeah. Um, something I learned, because minutes ago, I went on IMDb just for a very, very quick um, glance at the, the name of a character, and I found out that Richard, the one who's uh, married to the older lady with all the money, they never really mentioned his last name in the film, but on IMDb it's listed. His last name is Simmons. Oh, wow. But we got a Richard Simmons in this movie. The first time a Richard Simmons has ever been in a slasher film. <laughs> I got to say, that character reminded me of a kind of a rakish uh, uh, Charlie Sheen kind of guy. And, and, the way, and his, the way he operated as well, the exact same way you'd picture Sheen to do so uh, regarding how he treated women and his sort of misogyny and his uh, general assholishness behavior. Yeah, I can see that. And, and it's just, but it's just like, what is this, a buddy pick with these two guys, like a computer programmer hanging around with a, an exterminator? Like, how do these people connect socially? That's what I want to know. But connect they do because they're always asking one another to go for beers at this local, like, shabby bar. And that's, I think, the transition to Spain. But I think it's called Cobby's. And Cobby's is a, a yeah, bar. Yeah, where they go and uh, he's got to do some extermination work and there's this protracted scene where they're poking around in the dark and wondering where the smells are coming from. And the, this bar, I got to say, I mean, as a, you know, I've been known to, uh, you know, uh, raise the wrist on occasion and uh, knock back the, uh, the occasional beverage. But this is a bar whose door I would not darken. I mean, what an absolute, like... It looks like a pigsty, and I'm not, you know, speaking euphemistically, it literally looks like a barn. And never mind the fact that uh, when they do uh, uncover the, um, the source of the smell, it's a, it's a I'm going to say this uh, <laughs> somewhat uh, euphemistically, it's a beautiful decaying dead body. Great effects. It looked really, really good. <laughs> it had a Tales from the Crypt vibe <laughs> with the eyes sticking out. Yeah, that made me laugh. I thought that was absolutely uproarious. But they were poking in there for, uh, God knows, it must have been 15 minutes, and there's all these rats. So, But, I mean, oh, another thing I've learned is, like, well, well we're, we're frequently uh, uh, apt to point out how uh, disappointed we are in a lot of jump scares, but there's a terrific... Uh, jump scare in oh, I mean we're gonna have to spoil it to some extent involving a vehicle let's just say and I actually did jump out of my sofa and seat and I thought it was really really well done I mean again like the tonality and the wildly swinging shifts between gothic horror and cheesy slasher tropes was something to behold I mean this was a movie that there's even some giallo in here as well I mean uh, they have the killer dogs black gloves the French coat etc you got some of that too. Oh yeah, and the just the um, like a weird uh, what third wheel element when you have uh, Gerald and his buddy Richard and they're hanging out with Richard's wife and and they're having an argument and she says something to the effect of I don't want to do this in front of your friend and it's like this this toxic relationship that this man has with an older woman and you almost got to give it props for that because it's the, the opposite is, is what's so frequently seen in film. I mean, and uh, societally as well. Like how often do you see some 30, 40 year old dude with a 50 year old woman instead of someone who's like 15, 20 years his junior. So that was something really kind of unique and odd to see just the people and how they interacted with one another was strange. Another thing I learned is in any of these backwoods movies, you got to have someone referred to as old man something something. So in this ah, one, yes. this yeah, one, uh, like old man Brock, 
Brock. Old man, yeah, old man Brock. Like down at the general store, old man Brock. He runs the county store. Yeah, that guy had some sort of log cabin that he owned and one of the principals stayed in or whatever. It was just so, like, they really actually did cr create quite a little community of folks in this fictional town. And the, the priest was terrific. Uh, the, I guess, Lillian woman was a, a frequent churchgoer despite her uh, propensity to run off with... Uh, you know, degenerate guys in the bar, but she contributed, uh, uh, you know, amply to this terrible choir. And there is a little, uh, it's a built up community. It's almost like Shit's Creek or something. Like everyone in this town interacts with everyone very well. And my God. Yeah. Like I, I alluded, I alluded to Rasputin, the rat, the mad monk. I think the coroner looked a little bit like an Irish kind of Rasputin with a big white beard and that there was some, I mean, characters galore in this movie. I mean, the police work i mean uh i was recently watching um you know a mutual friend of ours is uh veronica down in california and she recommended that i check out a documentary about the speed freak killers and like this is the kind of the area where you know, a lot of these weird things have happened and some of the police work i got to say both in that case and i think in this case was maybe left something to be desired at one point the guy just basically says uh we've had seven murders in the span of a couple weeks six of whom were women and one was a man and there and something has to be done but nothing is really done like nobody they have no plan they have no there's no uh Fulsome protracted coroner's investigation. There's no uh, calling in of the FBI or anyone to do a psych psychological profile. They, they do practically nothing in this movie. And I know that's maybe par for the course. Like when you have the cops show up in like Friday the 13th part three, basically when everyone's massacred and they don't do anything, they do nothing here, these cops. They just sort of gaze at bodies. speak to the schizophrenic tone of this film veering from one uh, uh, polarity to another but uh, psychiatry and psychology plays a role in uh, Lillian's background and this is funny because it's nascent internet technology but Gerald has the ability to check out her search history even though I guess it's keystrokes they don't really make it apparent and we find out that Lillian has a secret in which she's tried to solicit the help of uh, mental health practitioners because she's got some skeletons in her closet and that uh, comes to play as the uh, film unspools so that I thought that was really funny too because this thing was so ahead of its time I mean you can check people's search history and in this weird like you know voice text computer interface uh, precursor to AOL chat uh, Gerald was able to like glean a little bit of info from her I think at one point she wanted to do like a master's degree in some other state, and Gerald was effectively spying on her in some respects. So oh, I thought that was... I mean, that was... I, I thought this movie was just, uh, I mean, super fun, and uh, could have been really awesome with a few, uh, like, minor tweaks. You know, it's funny you say that, because I guess this would be the, uh, the time when we give our star rating, but I didn't, I didn't feel any lag time whatsoever. I thought the movie was... I mean, there was a really, really high body count... Yeah. And 
there was little lag time between kills. I thought that it just uh, hit the ground running, and I don't think I checked my uh, my watch. Not that I wear a watch, my cell phone, even one time. I, I was totally entertained by this thing. I'm gonna give it uh, three and three quarter stars. Well, it seems like uh, there's some overlap with uh, our critical, uh, you know, uh, approbation for this thing because you have horrornews.net, and I'm just reading this off the page here. I just saw this, but uh, terribly underrated and a little ahead of its time. But yeah, I, I totally have to agree that like there was no uh, runtime uh, inconsistencies or uh, bugbears on my end. I thought it was really it it uh, it you know ventured along at a quite a nice clip. It just there was uh, a, f a few cheesy moments that I thought sort of uh, took away from the proceedings and I think there was also an extent to which the uh, director really couldn't commit uh, to uh, certain kills and so you have some cutaway deaths and then you have uh, some that are more um, uh, you know more visceral and more impactful and they didn't really I mean this was fairly uh, punches pulled in in the gore uh, when it comes to gore I think it probably could have stood to have a little more uh, burning or uh, that kind of style uh, uh, bloodletting, but uh, you know, I, I, th I think that's a, just a minor quibble. Uh, some people call this generic. I mean, Arrow Video didn't think so. I think a, a year ago they re -re they released this with uh, I think Deadly Manor on a double bill, which would have been this filmmaker's I think final work, and it's something that is on my to see list uh, right away. I mean, I'm going to give this a solid, solid three and a half star. And I prefer it to pieces, which, uh, you know, ups the, the goofy ante quite a bit more. I thought this one had, like, again, that scene with the pig farm and the uh, uh, the victim uh, running from, from the killer and this uh, blood dripping from the from the ceiling of a home onto one of the play, the dinner plates. I think there's a lot of little quirk, quirky... Blood was dripping from the ceiling from a, a, a canine, by the way. They actually killed a dog. Yeah. Yeah, and I know you don't uh, highlight this as much, but I always call attention to when a pet gets murdered. That's how you know someone's really committed to the horror, <laughs> to bringing the goods. And yeah, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, man's best friend ends up, uh, uh, you know, on the wrong side of the daisies. And you got to like, question the motivations always of um, horror movie uh, victims uh, or targets or like... At least this woman ventured upstairs to see what was going on instead of the basement, where which pretty much uh, signs your death warrant right there. But like, still, if you see blood dripping from the ceiling, like even I would call this useless police department and then get the hell out of Dodge. For sure. All right. Well, uh, hopefully you enjoyed this discussion, and uh, this is another film. Uh, also, that although the it didn't. Uh, uh, contribute in terms of the killing but it did f feature a motorcycle riding which i always like because uh what is it uh night school that uh that uh, infamous uh, 1980s slasher uh, strip nude for your killer uh, these types of uh, cheesy giallo and uh, oh yeah nightmare beach where you got a motorcycle riding a mysterious person riding through town like they're they're in some uh, fucking uh, john wayne western uh, i thought that was really that was pretty funny as well. So the protagonist is driving around in his motorbike and the characters that were so heavily invested in and in a genre where that's so often not the case. I mean, big time kudos for this one and you could be annoyed with them, but you got to admit you, you got to know them in a, in a very, very, uh, you know, considerable manner. I mean, we got to know all these three people. And amazing kills. Some yeah. Some more than others, but all worth checking out.
Definitely. And we hope you continue to check out our podcast. Um, it's always good to see something uh, come up, uh, you know, come up on uh, the likes of Tubi or some other streaming service, something that was completely alien to both of us, which is so rare because, I mean, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of horror films, you probably even more than I have, and for something to uh, have skipped both of our uh, attentions, that, that is certainly something unique. Sure. I'm really glad you recommended this one, Chris. I had a blast with it. Oh, cheers, and we're looking forward to more uh, delving in more into the work of uh, Jose uh, Ramon Larraz. So uh, be sure, yeah, we're definitely going to check out uh, Deadly Manor. I mean, I can, you know, it's just a question of when. And so continue to enjoy the show, and uh, we shall talk to you soon. Thank mm-hmm. you.